Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. When I realized I had to address this issue, I call it saving God from true believers, is something that happened a long time ago and something that happened more recently. If you remember, I think it was back in 2001, before 9-11, right, there were, the Taliban destroyed the two, Buddha, two Buddhas in Bamiyan, in Bamiyan in Afghanistan, and um, everyone was aghast at the barbarity of destroying a World Heritage Site and, you know, the, the, the Buddhas were a 1,000 years old, I think, which is not so old from Jewish standards and not so old even from Buddhist and Buddhist standards, right? Um, so that was something that um, shook a lot of people up. And I was thinking about it as someone, like my background is I went to Yeshiva's Eitz Chaim in Borough Park for elementary school in Brooklyn. And... Um, I grew up from, um, and um, I, it, what it made me think is like, one second, what they did was terrible, but isn't that what the Torah says you're supposed to do, right? The, the, the story of the conquest of the land of Canaan involves destroying idolatry, wiping out the inhabitants, right? Um, so all these people that said it was a terrible thing like, but if, if, if the Messiah came, so to speak, right, this is what we would be doing, right? So how do, how do we square that, right? And then there's something happened more recently, a couple of years ago. I live in Efrat. Now, Efrat is in Gush Etzion, and there's a, there's a supermarket in, in the Gush Etzion Junction which is like this island of sanity in the insane Middle East, where um, both uh, Jews and Palestinians shop there, right? In the middle of everything, right? Like if, if, if Pesach comes out the same time as Ramadan, you're finished because everybody is there shopping at the same time, okay? You, don't, you probably don't know, but it's Ramadan now, right? And Muslims shop like crazy because they don't eat during the day, but they eat a lot at night, right? So, um, and if they're all shopping at the same time, it's totally insane, right? And, and um, you know, the, the Palestinian women squeezing the chalas on Arab Shabbos, and they already, you know, it's crazy, right? In a good way, it's crazy. So you have Arabs and Jews interacting in, in that environment, right? Now, it's not that everybody is, like, chummy-chummy with everyone. It's clearly two different populations. I don't want to create a misimpression. But it's some form of normalcy, right? And... Um, there were, there were some kids giving out 
flyers outside of the supermarket saying they shouldn't hire Arab workers. Right? And I was very disturbed by this. My parents survived the Shoah, and it's not the same thing, but that really um, made me feel very, um, it uh, really lit some match in my head, which drove me crazy when I saw that. Um, so I went over to them. They were teenagers, right? And I said, you know, this is racism. And, um, and they said, the Torah is racist, right? At which point I felt I couldn't interact with them anymore. I was too, no, I was too upset. I could think now, after, I'm still upset with myself that I didn't say what I, what I could have or would have said, but I was just too upset, so I just called the police. Right? I just called the police. I said that people that are inciting, this is against the law, you know, and that was it. They, were, they disappeared from there for a while. But in any case, so, but what this forced me to, to think about is you can read the Torah that way. Now, I don't believe that that's what the Torah is saying, but you can read it that way. And traditionally, certainly in terms of destroying idolatry um, and how you relate to the indigenous population in Canaan, right, um, is very problematic from a liberal Western standpoint, which most normal, even orthodox people, <laughs> people like me, I hope, right, embrace. So how do, how do we work that out, right? Um, and I think the first thing about that is trying to be honest about it. Right? So if we look at some of the, so there's a commandment in the Torah to wipe out Amalek, right? And the story of Purim also revolves around wiping out Amalek, right? So, I'm think, so people will say, well, Amalek, you really have to root out evil, and that's true, right? We have to, you see, when people are kind towards evil phenomena, it generally encourages it. So you have to root out evil. Oh, I agree with that, right? First, you need the courage to label what's evil as evil, right? And then you have to fight it. Okay, right, so how, how bad were the Amalekites, right? Were they as bad as the Nazis? How bad were they? Now, they were bad, you know, just the way the Torah tells the story, working off that, that's the story that we know, okay? They attacked the weak, right? They waited, for, they waited, they lurked in the shadows, waiting for the weak to be alone, and they attacked, so that's very bad, right? Okay? So they're very bad. So, so the command is to destroy all of them. The combatants, the non-combatants, the children, everyone, right? So were they worse than the Nazis? So let's say they were as bad as the Nazis, because you really can't think of anything worse than the Nazis, right? So my father lost his whole family in the Shoah. Okay? I grew up with that. As a little kid, I grew up with these horrific stories, okay? so. Um, if, my, if you had given my father nuclear weapons, would he have nuked Germany today? No, right? I mean, he was obviously angry at Germany, right? But he wouldn't kill every last German to the end of time for what, for what had happened, okay? So, uh, so that's, a, that's a problem. Right, so was, you have Amalek was evil. Let's say they have an evil ethos, right? But still, to the end of time, okay? 
And then you have things like, in the Torah, laws that, like you have destruction of, of idolatry. Um, there's laws of um, destroying an Israelite city, which most, if most of the city worshipped idols. You have killing for sins such as infidelity. Um, so what's the answer? That it doesn't apply today. Well, these, these laws, they don't apply today. In, in Hebrew, you say it's not noheg bizman hazeh. It doesn't apply today. So it turns out when you look at it, like 80% of the Torah doesn't apply today. So if, if you say that, and from, from the perspective of someone who's totally committed to, to the Torah, what does it mean if you, if you espouse an eternal God-given Torah, 80% 80, 80 of which doesn't apply today, right? Or I'll tell you a story about, I, I have six kids, and when my, I have a 14-year-old who's five out of six. So he's a natural theologian. Everybody's in a different place, but this kid is a natural theologian. And he also loves learning Talmud, so I study Talmud with him. And um, we were studying the laws of, of marriage, right, of Kiddushin. And, um, and we did the sugya, we did the, the, um, we did the legal um, topic of, of how marriage works, where there's an, there's an act of acquisition that the man does, right? And we're learning all the intricacies of it. And then he stops a couple of weeks in. He says, what do we do today? Right? He just looked at me and said, like, what do we do today? I was talking about kesef and kinyan kesef and all the sugyot. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, clearly, like, what do we do today? So I said, no, this is what we do today. And he looked at me, really? Right? So what do you, like, what do you say? What do you say to that? Right? I want him to have that sensitivity. Right? Because he thought it's like all the other things that don't apply today. <laughs> right? But these, so how do we, how do I, I'm really, like, you only, and saying you only teach yourself, and you're only like working out things, and so I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. How do I come to terms with this, right? Because I'm going to be very honest. Maybe it's not the best thing to talk about to a primarily non-orthodox crowd. I don't know everybody, anybody personally here, right? But I think it's very important to be honest, and I speak from a place of total commitment to the Torah as an expression of uh, God's will in the world. However, you understand that to be, right? I want to start with looking at two sources from halachists, and which I think change the emphasis of, or give us a way of looking at this problem. Okay? The first, I, I, as I translated it, is a response from Rav, of Rav Moshe Feinstein, right? Who, um, he was a major halachic decisor here in America. Uh, he died in, in the 1980s. He was really acknowledged as the major Torah um, rabbinic authority, one of the major rabbinic authorities in the world at the time, I think. Right? So he has a book of responsa, and he was asked the following question. This is back in 1978. Okay, that's the date here. Is Chavzayin Sivan Tavshin Lamed Chet? That's that would be after Shavuos in 1978. I'll give you a little bit of background. You can read the, the response while I, while I give you the background to the, to the question, okay? The question, the, the halakha is as follows. A person born 
from a union which is incestuous or um, idolatrous, not idolatrous, adulterous, right? Um, you see the connection in my mind. Um, is, is a mamzer, right? That means they're not allowed to marry another person who's not a mamzer. Uh, they can marry other mamzerim, or they can marry um, um, gayrim, right? But they can't marry a person who was born Jewish, okay? Um, now, if, and these relations are, you know, if they're incestuous, mother, son, brother, sister, right? Or if it's through infidelity, if the woman was married, then the child, and she had relations with someone else, the child is a mamzer, okay? So it's a, it's a, it's a stain upon this person, okay? Even though they don't deserve it, they didn't do anything wrong, okay? So I'm not going to talk about that. That's another problem, okay? Um, now, if the, um, the child is born of a relationship where the mother was menstruant at the time, and since it's prohibited to have sexual relations when the woman is a menstruant, so then the child is permitted. The child is not a mom's there, right? But the Talmud says that they have certain characteristics of being chutzpahdik, and um, it's better not to marry them. That's what the Talmud says. Okay? But it's not something uh, purely halachic. It's more of a... And I, I can explain that in terms of the contextually in society, that if there's a society where everybody observes something, and there's somebody that doesn't, like, what does it say? But what does that do with the family? And what is it? You, can, you can explain it. That per se doesn't bother me because I, I can understand that as not, as not being essentialist, okay? As not being something which is true in biology. It has to do with the social context of, of, um, of relationships between husbands and wives in the context of society, et cetera, okay? So let's put that aside also. Are you with me on that? Yeah. Understand. Okay, because everything I'm opening up here, there's, there's room to discuss. I'm happy to discuss anything, but then we'll never get through this. I just want to get to this. And then the next time I come back, we'll have a shout-out about a whole bunch of things, okay? Um, so the question that Rabbi, that Rav Moshe Feinstein was asked, are you ready for this, okay? Like I said, I'm just showing you what's here. I'm not apologizing. That's part of what I'm doing. I'm just being honest, right? So, of course, it's, you know, I, okay. So, so he was asked by a fellow who studies in Kolel, right? A uh, young, aspiring Talmudic scholar, right? Um, or aspiring to be a scholar, whatever. Um, he, he asked the following question. He wasn't married. He was going out with somebody. He was introduced to a very nice girl, uh, you know, Balat Yiratshamayim. She was uh, God-fearing and kind. And in Yiddish, they say alamilis, right? All the virtues. But her parents were not observant. Right? She was a Balat Shuva, right? Now, that's what that didn't bother him. What bothered him, it means that her mother was a menstruant woman when, when she conceived her daughter. So she's the daughter of a menstruant woman. Right? It is what it is here. So the, I just want to, so the question was, should he continue going out with this girl? Because the Talmud says that these people have bad characteristics, right? They're chutzpahdik, they're haughty, they're all these things, right? And the Talmud says that you shouldn't marry them. So that was the question that he was asked, okay? And then, um, so I'm going to read the answer, okay? 
Right, the question is, I translated this, so it's, it's not a word-for-word -word translation, but the translation is mine. If you're up to the Hebrew, you can see the original, and you can judge for yourself, okay? Um, should one abstain from marrying a woman who may be the daughter of a nidah, that's a menstruate woman, but is modest and virtuous, but yet at, she belies the Talmudic statement, right? Because she is modest and virtuous, but the Talmud says that people like that aren't, okay? You ask whether she, he should be concerned about marrying this maiden since her parents were not observant, therefore she is the daughter of an Ida, regarding whom the Talmud advises not to marry them. I added that. Despite the fact that she is modest and virtuous. Okay? It seems to me okay, that since we do not know for sure that she is the daughter of an Ida, we certainly should rely on the assumption that she is not. Now, how is that? If the woman never went to the mikvah, so how can you say that the, the mother, how can you say she's not an Ida, right? So he says, um, this is because it is possible that her mother bathed in a lake at particularly the correct time of the month, etc. And therefore the mother was actually not an Ida at the time of conjugal relations with her husband. I'm willing to assume this since marrying the offspring of an Ida does not involve either a biblical or rabbinical prohibition and we can definitely rely on the indicators that her mother was not a nida since she was modest and virtuous, right? Whereas the Talmud attributes lack of modesty and brazenness to the children of Nidot, right? So the first thing he says is that it must be that, that it was okay because I'm willing to assume that the mother wasn't a nida for the, all these you know, unlikely combinations. Right, that she went to the lake, and the lake was a kosher mikveh. Some lakes are, some lakes aren't. I'm not going to get into the laws of, of mikvehs. Right? Some lakes are, some lakes aren't. And the fact that she, he goes through the whole thing, the fact she was wearing a bathing suit, you're not supposed to be wearing anything, but the bathing suit, it, could be, it lets the water in any way. He was willing to take all these positions um, in order to assume that she wasn't the nida. And then, then he has this circular reasoning. Right? The, the basic assumption is that Talmud is true. The Talmud can't make a mistake. Right? So if the Talmud says that the children of, of Nidot are brazen and she's virtuous and modest, so it must be that she's not the daughter of Anida, right? Now, so that's what he said, right? Okay. Now, like when I eat in a restaurant, like I have certain standards of the hashgacha, like what type of rabbinic supervision I need in order to eat in a restaurant. Like, I wouldn't eat in a restaurant with ha which had a rabbinic supervision like that. In other words, yeah, they bring in meat from here and they bring in meat from there. Most probably the meat is kosher most of the time, even though there's a trail of meat from the trafe slaughterhouse over there. You know, the so what was he really saying? That's the question. What was Rav Moshe Feinstein really saying? Is there a subtext to this? What would you have said if you didn't throttle the guy for asking the question? Right, which might be the, in the inclination of people here. But if we get past that, honestly, if we get past that, like what would you say to someone like that? What would you say? I can tell you what I would, yeah, what would you say? How are you going to get along with your in-laws? <laughs> I think even before that, okay, right, the in-laws, the in-laws, right? But what you say, that's true. Virtuous, it'll, it'll go for many generations. 
so this person is a virtuous person and has to be taken on her own terms. So I, he's, he's engaging in Rahmanis reasoning. Yeah, I agree with you. I think what he would have said, what you're saying is still much too sophisticated for this guy. What he would have said, I think, what he meant to say is, she's a nice girl, right? right? She's modest. She's God-fearing. What are you hacking me a China for, <laughs> right? I, I, I th you see, that's what I think he's really saying. You have to, uh, yeah. What? So right, he's trying, but he can't say that, right? One second. He can't say that because he has to speak the language that this kid, this kid, right? Maybe he's 19, maybe he's 20, right? That this kid can understand. And he can't come to him with his grandfatherly wisdom and say, come on, what are you talking about, right? But that's, so what, what does that mean here, right? With that, and I'll give you another example in a minute. What that means is we're generally used to thinking, or Orthodox people used to thinking, that, I don't know, what you, you can tell me what you used to think. I'm willing to, like, that, the, that there's like an objective um, Torah out there, right? And through our, the interpretive process of all, this, of all the halachic material, we do our best to reach the correct conclusion, right? And there can be different differences of opinions. The, 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 the tradition is very rich in terms of generating differences of opinions. But, but in terms of when I reach my conclusion, I think this is the right conclusion. You're entitled to your opinion that you think it's a different conclusion. That's okay. But what we both agree on is that there is some sort of conclusion that we're striving towards, right? And the conclusion's out there. So in a sense, there's a target painted on the wall, right? And I'm shooting my arrow, that's my interpretive um, process, and I try to hit the target, right? What happened, what's happening here, and that's why this, this response is very, uh, is very important, is it's clear that Rav Moshe Feinstein shot the arrow first, right? He already intuitively knew, like, why is this guy asking me, right? This guy, if, she, if she'll have him, like if she knew he was asking the question, maybe she would dump him, right? But if she will have him, right, that he should marry her. If, if she's a nice girl, that he should see her, right? So that was his conclusion. And then he had to paint the target around the arrow, right? Uh, painting the target around the arrow is coming up with the justifications ex post facto uh, so that the person that he's talking to can understand what he's talking about. Okay? That's what happened here. Yeah, you had a question. I, I want to go back even further in the story. Yeah. How does he know that she's a nidah or not a nidah? Because that's the assumption. If the parents are not observant, if the parents are not observant, so the mother never went to the mikvah. And he knows this. You can assume that. That's the reasonable assumption. Because you know, if, if a woman is not observant, so she doesn't go to the mikvah. Okay. Right? That was the assumption. Right? To Ramosha, like when Ramosha was addressing the question, he said, I'm willing to assume that she did somehow, right? But, but the questioner was the reasonable assumption without passing judgment. It's a reasonable assumption that someone is not observant, so they don't go to the mikvah. That's a reasonable thing. Maybe she went when she got married one time, you know, but. Maybe she went to the lake. Right, but that's exactly what Ramosha says, right? Maybe she went to the lake. Right, right, not the wrong Right, yeah. So is it easier for him to reach the conclusion because it's really not a prohibition? Ah, right, so that. Yes, that's very important. So he's, in this context, 
He's willing to say it, but he's not, he's not up against a, um, a Torah prohibition. It's more of something in the realm of custom, right? Even though it's a Talmudic statement. It's not just a custom, it's a Talmudic statement, but it's not law, right? So that gives him, it, he feels it gives him flexibility. But nonetheless, right, that said, he's, it still illustrates a certain approach, which I'm going to show you in an, another case, not of Moshe Feinstein, which um, here it does touch upon... Um, issues of greater halachic severity, okay? So let's go to the second, to a second example. This is much more innocuous. It'll probably elicit less visceral responses from some of the people here, right? Um, the, this is from Rav Herzog, who was the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel. Um, and when the state was established, um, religious Zionists were trying to work out how a modern state should conform to halacha, right? Not that anybody was listening to them, right? Which is really interesting. Like, like, it was like in an echo chamber, they're just talking to themselves, right? But it's interesting to listen to what they were saying to themselves because, because Ben-Gurion wasn't asking rabbis about what should be in a constitution, which, we never, which Israel never had, unfortunately. But that's a separate story. Right? I say that in, as an Israeli citizen that it's unfortunate that we don't have a constitution. But... Um, so, so Rav Herzog wrote, um, there are a number of volumes that Rav Herzog wrote. Herzog, before he became chief rabbi, he became chief rabbi when Rav Cook passed away. It was in like 1935. He was the chief rabbi uh, in, um, in, Dov- in Dublin, Ireland, right? And he was very well educated in secular studies. He had a doctorate from Oxford. I think it was Oxford. Um, in any case, so this is already after the establishment of the state. And the question was, how can we allow minorities, Arabs, right, to vote, to be elected to um, government, government, to the Knesset, to hold positions of authority, when um, it's clear that the, in the biblical model of, um, of statehood, that People that were not Jewish did not were not there were no elections right there were no election nobody elected Solomon or David right although there was popular sentiment was part of it but it wasn't an election right and so there was no elections at all but even if it had they had elections they would never have turned to the Canaanites who remained who weren't wiped out right to vote right they weren't part of the polity right so how is it how can we have citizenship um, and participation of minorities, I'm, I'm ignoring the conflict that we have with the Palestinians. Even if it was Canada, right? And there was a Jewish state in Canada, and we were just talking about peaceful Canadians, right, who were not Jewish, right? You would still have this question. Are you with me? Right? So I, this is con- not connected to the conflict that we have with the Palestinians, okay? So this was the question. So he says as follows, right? The Hebrew is here, but I'll read the English, okay? Furthermore, the nature of the state itself is a partnership of sorts, as if, through negotiations, the nations agreed to allow us to establish a shared government in which we would be the senior partners and have the right to determine the name of the state. Okay, listen to what he just did. He's he's talking about the sovereignty of the Jewish state. He's saying... We're not really sovereign. We're not really sovereign. 
the United Nations um, had, okay, how do we understand legally what happened? The United Nations recognized the state of Israel, right? So we established Israeli sovereignty. That sovereignty is as sovereign as any other state, right? No state is totally independent of any other state except maybe the United States. They can do what the hell they want, right? And that becomes clear right now. They're doing whatever they want, right? But, but normal countries, the United States is not a normal country anymore, but um, normal countries, I didn't say anything, right? Normal, normal countries um, are interdependent, right? But, the, but that's not, a, it's not a flaw in their sovereignty. That's just the way it is. It's like, I'm autonomous over myself. I can make free choices, but it doesn't mean that I can do whatever I want, right? I can't drive 200 miles an hour and, and run the red light. What does that mean? That means I'm a slave? No, it means that there's other considerations that limit my freedom, but it doesn't mean that I'm not sovereign over myself, right? Okay? But he's saying something else. He's saying that the sovereignty of the Jewish state is not complete. The UN, he's talking about the nations, he means the United Nations, basically it's like a mandate. Beforehand, there was, I'm just fleshing this out, there was a British mandate. That means that the British, together with the United Nations, ruled over mandatory Palestine, right? The British needed the permission and the mandate of the United Nations in order to do this. So the British are, uh, like the United Nations is outsourcing the administration of this territory to the British. That was the mandate, right? He said, so the British left, and now we have the mandate. This is how he's describing it, right? That it's a, he calls it in Hebrew, it's called a shutafut, right? I, I translate it as a partnership. That's what a shutafut is. It's a partnership. The UN needs to administrate this territory. They're willing to employ us, right? To employ the Zionists, right? That together, right, we will administer this territory. But the UN, they're too busy to administer the territory themselves. So they say, okay, you administer it. In part, we're like the silent partner, right? We own 50% of the shares, but you're going to, like it's 50-50, we own 50% of the shares, but you're the active partner. So you administrate it, and you can call it what you want. You want to call it Israel, call, Pal call what was Pal mandatory Palestine, call it Israel, fine, call it Israel, we don't care. You administer it, and you can call it whatever you want, okay? He says that is what we have, right? In which we should be the senior partners, and have the right to determine the name of the state. Is that considered the sovereignty which existed in the time as of David and Solomon? Rather, this sovereignty is of a different nature. In essence, it is shared between the Jewish people and the nations upon these conditions. And the conditions that he's talking about is that the UN only agreed to this partnership to which we agreed also. The conditions are that the minorities have equal rights. Right? So we have to give the Arabs and just non-Jews right, who, who live within this territory, we have to give them equal rights. That means they have the right to vote and they have the right to be elected to office and all that. Right? Because, so what's he saying? Like, you have to remember, he's a religious Zionist. Sovereignty for religious Zionists is very important. It's important for regular Zionists also, for non-religious Zionists also, that, there's, that, there's, that the Israeli state is sovereign. And that's a big deal that the Jewish people 
can exercise, I'm being very careful in my formulation now, that the Jewish people can exercise their sovereignty through the state of Israel, right? And that creates a new sovereignty called Israeli sovereignty, right? So that, I think, is the reality, right? But that's not the reality that he's describing. He's saying there isn't really any Israeli sovereignty. Like, we're, we're a nation, we're a second-class nation, right? We're not sovereign over over this territory the way the French is sovereign over France or the United States is sovereign over the United States, right? And why does he do this? Because he needs to say that there's a halachic loophole, right? Why do we have to give the Arabs the vote? Because we don't have authority. We must give them the vote, right? Because it's not ours, right? Because we agreed together with the UN to give them the vote, right? Because if, it was, if we had real sovereignty, like the good old days, right? You know, the good old, you know what they say about nostalgia? Nostalgia isn't what it used to be, right? So like the, like the good old days of David and Solomon, so then, of course, we, were not, we would not be allowed to grant any, uh, any of those type of rights to minorities, right? But that's not the situation, right? So what is he doing? He's sacrificing, conceptually, he's sacrificing... Israeli sovereignty, the idea of Israeli sovereignty, I put it this way, on the altar of democracy. Right? That's what he's doing. And the question is, what did he really think? What did he really think? Okay? Did he think this? He wasn't naive. The man had a doctor from Oxford. Right? He didn't think that this was the situation. Right? I don't think that that's what he thought, if you analyze it legally. I think he thought something else. Right? which is not far from what he says here. The, the, the fact is that a modern nation state didn't exist in the time of the Bible. Right? There was monarchy, and before the monarchy there were tribes. Membership in the polis depended on ethnicity. There was no such thing as citizenship defined by sovereign territory. That's a new idea. I don't know, Magna Carta maybe. But certainly, or maybe the French Revolution, right? That, that, that you have nation states where you define membership in the polity based upon citizenship rather than ethnic background, right? And that's the way it is in modern countries, right? That's the problem with the former colonial states, which the mentality is still one of ethnicity and they just carved out boundaries, and that's why you have all these terrible civil wars. There's no sense of nationhood. There's nothing that joins Shiite Iraqis and Sunni Iraqis and Kurds. Right? There isn't this sense of an Iraqi nation state because it was artificially carved out by, by the mandate, right? where the French were and where the British were. And that. So because they haven't evolved, and I, I say that with the, with the hazard of seeing to be Western pater, Westernly paternalistic, right? But they haven't evolved to the idea of a modern nation state. If they had, then there would be a lot less blood which was shed where, they, where a Kurd and a Shiite and a, and a Sunni in Iraq would say, first, we're Iraqis. And, and then I'm also a Sunni, I'm also a Shiite. You know, but they define themselves by their ethnicity and by their religion. So that's the way it was in biblical times, right? And the, the ethnic group for the, for the Israelites was being Israelite, right? And it's actually relatively enlightened that they tolerated other people there 
without enslaving them. Right? There were, there were non-Jews living among Jews that were not slaves. They were not part of the polity. They didn't have rights. Again, even talking about in terms of human rights is anachronistic because they didn't think in terms of human rights. Um, but they didn't have the same status as the Jews. They had their own communities. So that's a different type of, it's a different type of animal than a modern nation state. Right? It's just different. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So the Bible wasn't talking about that situation. In a modern nation state, you have citizenship. And he was the chief rabbi of Dublin. So if you want to, you have a choice. You want to, you want to live in biblical times. It doesn't exist anymore, right? So you, this is a modern nation state. Of course minorities have to be able to vote, right? Of course they have to be able to be elected to the parliament. The seat of the sovereignty is in the parliament, not in God. Right? The king isn't the sovereign. The, the, the Cohen isn't the sovereign. The sovereign is, is the parliament, right? He understood that. So, but, but he has to say it in a way which is, which uses halachic terminology that leads to the same outcome. So the way he says it is, our hands are tied. Right? In, in Hebrew, it's en yadenu takifa. Right? We, can't, we don't have the authority today. Like if we would, then that would be a different story. But we don't. Right? So he's constructed this artificial structure where we don't really have sovereignty even though we know we do have sovereignty, right? So again, what he did, this is another example, and here you're talking about Torah issues, meta issues in terms of governance, which does appear in the Torah and in, and in, the, and in Tanakh and in the way, in whatever codes there are that talk about um, governance, like, the, like Maimonides. So there are things about excluding non-Jews. But he was saying that's all not relevant. So what did he do? He shot the arrow first. He shot the arrow first, Israel, is going to be a modern nation state based on citizenship. That was axiomatic. And then the question is, how do I draw the target around this arrow? Right? And I'm going to say, we don't have the authority. When Mashiach comes, we'll deal with it in a sense. Right? Like when you say in Yiddish, Mashiach Zeiten. That's a way of saying, right? There's a joke about um, a chelm joke. You know the chelm? Everybody knows Chelm. So there's a Chelm joke. There's some, so there's a, there's a Chelm joke. There's somebody who had a job. He was sitting at the edge of the town on the roof. And his job was to alert the town, to alert the shtetl when Mashiach came. He was the, out, he was the, he was the lookout, right? So he was there in the winter and in the summer and in the snow and in the heat. And so they said, you know, like, what type of job is this? She said, yeah, it's a real terrible job, except one thing about the job is good, job security. <laughs> right? So when you say, when you say Mashiach Zeiten, you know, when Mashiach comes, so he's basically saying, we, don't have to, we shouldn't be dealing with this now. This is not David and Solomon, and Ben-Gurion is not King David, and it's a different creature, right? Okay, yeah. Now, there is that little uh, Talmudic story Yeah. And so he's having an argument with other rabbis, and he says, "If I am right, right, yeah. this fall down." It's Rabbi Yoshua. Yeah, yeah. And it goes on and on, and finally they say, "Wait a minute, 
It's no longer in heaven. It's here. Right. Well, that's, that's the, empowerment, right. the empowerment to interpret. Right. And the follow-on is, is that my children have destined me, right? Right. Right. So the, so, but the question is here, here he's clearly, crea- but the interpretation normally has, has to have a certain type of um, coherence, right? We can say this is what it might mean. I, I can see like, there, are, there are principles of exegesis, right, Where, which we can all judge, right? It's not like the Pope decides, right? We can look. I've been learning Talmud. You've been learning Talmud. So let's see. It, can you, do you think that this is what it's saying? Is it reasonable? Why are you interpreting it this way? You can interpret it that way. That's what goes on, right? So, but here he's clearly saying something which is not true. This is not true, right? There was no agreement between the United Nations and the Zionist movement that we would rule the, that we would rule the country together. That's not what happened. And he knew that's not what happened, okay? So the, what? All right, I'm not going to put to current politics. They want to hold Israel, Israel accountable to whatever standards they think we have to be held accountable to. Whatever. That's, I understand. So, um, okay. So the question is, here's the question I'm asking. How did he know? How did Rav Herzog, what gave him the confidence to shoot the arrow first and draw the target afterwards? What gave Rav Moshe Feinstein the confidence to shoot the arrow first and draw the arrow, drew, draw the target afterwards, right? So um, I think um, we come to, um, we have to, people have to leave their naive view of how interpretation occurs, okay? And for this, I just want to take a quick look. Okay, let's take a look at this. On the bottom of the page we were just looking at, right? The second side. You see where it says Isaiah Halevi Horowitz? Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right, this is from a book called the Shnei Luchot Habrit, Two Tablets of the Law, okay? Um, this book, I just want to give you, you have to understand, the authority, this book is not so studied, studied that much today, but at the time, and until recently in Eastern Europe, this, this book was canon. It's a mixture of a Kabbalistic work and Talmudic work, okay? And he lived in the bridge between the Kabbalist of Tzvat, which was the 16th century, right, to the, when Hasidut began in the 18th century, okay? He was like in between. Um, so he writes in his introduction as follows, okay? Um, and we're going to do this is a little bit of Kabbalah, okay? I'll try to explain it so it should be um, comprehensible for everybody, Okay? He starts by discussing um, a verse from Eov. Through my flesh, I will perceive God. Okay? From the form and image of Adam, God's reality is revealed. Okay? This is why the word Adam, right? I wrote it without the vowels because he's counting the numerical values, doing a gematria. Yeah, bring you know what a gematria is? Okay. He's doing the numerical value of the letters. The word Adam has the numerical value of the great name yud heh vav heh. Okay? Now, okay, let's work it out. This is simple arithmetic. Okay? Does anybody know what yud heh vav heh adds up to? What? No. Yud is 10. Okay. 
Yud is 10. Hey is 5. Right, that's 15. Okay, I, I, I was never good in arithmetic, so I'm going to begin to lose it already. All right, it's 15. Vav is another 6. 21. And another 5 is Hey is, is 26. Right, so 26 is the gematria of Yud, of yud K Vav K. That's the numerical value, 26. Okay? Now, What's the num- and he says the numerical value of the word Adam is also is the same as Yud Hey Vav Hey, okay? Aleph is one, Dalit is four is five, and Mem is forty, is forty five. Forty five and twenty six. Even I know that that's not the same thing. Okay, okay. But this is what he did. This is important. There's different ways. I'm belaboring this because this is actually important. Okay, and I should give you greater respect for how Kabbalists um, calculate things, okay? So just bear with me. This, there's a way of counting, uh, of counting something where you, f- it's called milui alfin, is filling in the alephs. What that means is, is yud is not just 10. How do you write out a yud? You write out a yud by yud vav dalid is a yud, right? If you write out the letter yud, it's yud vav dalid. So Yud becomes 20. Okay? Hey is Hey Aleph. That's how you write a Hey, right? It's 6. Okay? Vav is Vav Aleph Vav. is 13. Okay? It's 40. Okay? is 39. And Hey, the last Hey, is Hey Aleph is 45. Right? So the holy name, I'll put it this way, when you spell out the holy name, this is where it becomes meaningful, when you spell out the holy name, it equals Adam. Okay? So what does that mean? All right. I'm going to go someplace else now. We'll come back. It's just in order to explain this. Okay? Do you, Definition of God. I wouldn't use the word definition, but you're in the right direction. But I mean, some equivalent. So what does that mean? Like, what does it mean? It means that each of us has godliness within us. Right. And if we recognize it, then we are, we're not Adam, we're yud heh You know, it's when you unpack yud heh vav right? When, for yud heh when it's contracted, is just God, right? When you unpack it, let me give you an example. This is where I want to go. Did anybody, do you remember the movie um, Amadeus, yeah. right? I know I'm talking to people more or less my age when everybody says yes, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, it was like, how long ago was it? 15, 20 years ago. So, um, so there's a scene there where Mozart is writing the music on the parchment, right? And you're hearing the symphony at the same time, right? How does that happen? It's just ink on parchment. How does the, just look at it like physically, right? It's just ink on parchment. How does the ink on parchment become music in your ears and if you're sensitive to music and bring tears to your eyes? How does that happen? It's just ink made out of whatever it's made out of on what's left of the rainforest or the skin of an animal. So how did the ink on the skin of an animal become music? How did that happen? Well, how do the words of the Torah... That's exactly my point, right? 
So the words of the, that's exactly my point. The words of the Torah is ink on parchment, and it's in the holy ark. How does it become alive? What makes it alive? We make it alive. Because when you live what it says, you are the music. That's what it really is. When you look at the, when you look at the paper, this is just a representation of the music. This is a representation of the words. I'm talking about what it says here, but this is just like a, it was printed on a printer an hour ago, right? So how is what I'm saying here? Because I'm taking this, and I'm hopefully making it alive, right? So that's, that's what the Torah is. So, so God all by himself, so to speak, is like not part of the world. Right? That's when it's like written on the parchment. That's the yud hey vav hey that's written in the Sefer Torah that's locked up in the Aron so that nobody should steal the Sefer Torah, right? That's, that's that. But what makes it alive, how does it come into the world when you literally unpack it? You add it, you spell it, you're spelling it out, right? Let me, we talk like this. Let me unpack this for you. Let me spell it out for you, right? So when you spell out God's name, it becomes human beings, right? So that, it, what you said before is correct. I agree with you, right? It means that we become a piece of the divine revelation. Okay? Does it mean the opposite as well? The opposite. If, if we unpack it, does it also mean that God has a piece of man in his essence. Yes. Yeah. It goes both ways, right? That's what it is. That's what we've, that's, in a sense, that's what we've got within our realm of consciousness, right? Is the unpacking of God, right? So once you, and that's based on the verse, that's this is what the Shla does, right? With the Shnei Chotabrit. What he's doing is he's saying that what it means to be created in the image of God is beyond what people generally say is that God is, has creative energy and we also have creative energy. That's all true, but it's much deeper than that. It's that we actually unpack God and we know God through ourselves, right? It's what a Greek philosopher said, I think it was, um, I don't remember who it was, that he thinks horses imagine God to be a horse, right? So th- there's a sense of projection. The question, of course, is which comes first, right? We're created in the image of God, or we create God in our image. There's no, there's no uh, rational answer to that question. Then it becomes a matter of faith, right? If I believe that it started with God, and, cre- and therefore I can know God through myself, it's because God created me in his or her, whatever, image, right? So um, this, I think becomes the basis, the foundation, of where does it come to be that you should trust yourself, right? Where did Rav Moshe Feinstein or Rav Herzog, when they, when they saw the reality and the, the, the words in the, in the halachic texts say one thing, but he understood something else, right? So where does, how, does that, how does that happen? Right? It happens because they understand that when they reflect upon themselves and how they feel, that that is, the, that is also a divine revelation. Right? Okay. So let me just, yeah, question? No, I was thinking about your music metaphor. Yeah. That, that all of rabbinic Judaism is basically people who are well-educated in Torah who are like a musician who is well-educated in music 
can improvise around the theme. It's it's jazz. Jazz, you know it, are, is very controlled. Has has specific rules. So, but it also has possibilities of of being something that goes beyond. Right. So it all of all of this is very dangerous and exciting. Right. Right. I like the fact you call it dangerous, but nothing that's worth anything isn't dangerous. Right? That's another thing. He says, if you look in the Hebrew, And then he writes out the letters. If you see the Hebrew. Okay? Um, okay? Okay? I want to bring this home further. Okay? There's a very interesting insight by um, a Hasidic master of Gershon Henoch of Radzin. He lived in the end of the 19th century. I don't know if he lived into the 20th century or not. Um, this, I have it here in Rashi print, and I summarize what he said. But um, I'll read it in Hebrew, and then I'll summarize it. Okay? What they, I'll give you the background. He discuss, was discussing the symbolism of the Brit Ben Habitarim. The Brit Ben Habitarim is the covenant that God made with Avraham, uh, which was, which was um, consecrated by cutting animals in half. You remember the, if you remember the case in the Bible, right? Cutting the animals in half, and Abraham and the fire went through the animals, remember? And Batar is to cut in half, right? Yes? Everybody with me? So he talks about the... Like, that's a really strange way of, to, of making an agreement, is to take a bunch of animals, cut them in half, and walk in between, right? Um, so um, the truth is that the first anthropologists of religion in the end of the 19th century, like Fraser, the Golden Bow by Fraser, who was British... Uh, Anthropologist, he was like the first one that was doing the anthropology of religion. So he actually wrote an article about this, and the simple meaning of it is um, it was a curse that two people walk through. If people make an agreement, cut the animals in half, and it's if either side doesn't hold up their side of the agreement, they should suffer the same fate of these animals. That's what it meant in the ancient world. And in ancient Canaan, they actually found animals cut in half where clearly that something, this ritual was done. They even found people cut in half, right? This was, this was the Canaanites, which maybe explains why the Torah says we have to wipe them out. But that's, that's a separate thing, okay? That's where, we, that's where the word comes from. This is very interesting. These things survive in civilization. You talk about cutting a deal, that's where it comes from, right? I mean, cut a deal, right? Because they used to cut the animals in half, Okay? That's why we talk about cutting a deal or cutting a covenant, right? Um, okay. Koreit habrit, right? L'chrot is to cut, right? To cut a covenant. That's what koreit habrit means. Okay, so he's, he's going to talk about... So why am I talking about this? Because he has a different understanding of what this symbolizes, right? This might not be historically accurate, but it tells me of a way of looking at things which... Um, um, I think is uh, very important. He says as follows. Um, he quotes his father, Binyan Brit, right, concerning um, covenant. Shahaya Haminhag, 
that the custom was to cut an animal and to walk in between the severed portions. Okay? Lirmos to indicate kishnenu mishoresh echad nivrenu to say to indicate that both of us, the two people making the agreement, we really come from the same place. We were we come from the same root. Va'av echad lechulanu. We have the same forefather. We all descend from Adam, right? El echad bra'anu, and one God created both of us. And so therefore, why should we betray one another? Right? So it's a very universal message here. It says, what's happened? If I cut the animal in half, and I walk in between with someone else, I'm saying, look, the animal part of us is the outside. We may look different. I may be black, you may be white. right? We may be, look different, but that's external. Let's cut, let's put that aside. Literally, you cut it in half and you put it aside. And when we walk in between, we're talking about the internal reality. It's like, that's the goof. The outside is the body. But inside, it's a very like, liberal, almost lighthearted message. Inside, we're all the same, right? Because inside, we come, it's not that we're all the same. I don't like just simple syncretism like that. But, but inside, we come from the same place. We're united. We come from the same God. We come from the same forefather. We come from the same root. We're all human, right? And these differences that we have are exterior to who we are. And that's what that symbolizes, right? It's a very, I think, a very beautiful interpretation of what Brit Ben Habitarin is. But then, let's stop for a second. He doesn't take this to the next step. Who walked in between the cuts in the case of Abraham? If two people are making an agreement, and then the two people, the two kings, whatever, they would walk in between the portions of the meat, of the, of the animals. But in, in this case, it's Abraham and God. So what does that mean? Right? If God walks in the form of the fire, he walks together with Abraham through the cuts. What does he say? We were all created by the same God. We have the same forefather. Like, what is it? it means that in essence, it's the same idea that we had before, that in essence there's an identity on some level between God and human beings. Right? And that is the meaning of being created in the image of God. Right? It's looking, and this is a very Kabbalistic way of, of looking at, at the issue. I'm going to put it this way. Human beings are a symbol of God. That's why when Yechezkel, in the first chapter of the book of Yechezkel, when he has his vision of God, he sees God's throne. He sees a human beings sitting on God's throne. Right? You don't have to go too far to where the Christians took that. Right? You know, the image of God being a human being is not just this platitude to make people feel good about themselves. Right? It means there's something essential about what it is to be human and, and, and that God is in that. Okay? So once you've absorbed that, right, so that should give you a certain type of confidence to rely upon yourself as a source, as a, and I talk about it from the terms of the study of Torah, right? the, tal, the, the passages in the Torah are sources. What do we do when we try to decide or understand some sort of halachic issue? Right? 
There are sources that we open. We open up the books. Let's look what the books say, right? So you look at the Talmud, and you look at the medieval authorities, and you look at the later authorities, and you look at the Shulchan Aruch and the commentaries, depending on how complicated the question is, right? So you try to take the sources together and reach some sort of coherent conclusion. But one of those sources, maybe the most important source, is yourself. That you're also a source. Right? The book says this, but I feel this. So it's like having two different sugyot, two different passages in the Talmud that contradict. You talk about a contradiction in the Talmud, right? This kind of, so you have two things. That, but one of the things that contradicts is like, what do I feel? Right? Now, it doesn't, when there's a contradiction, it doesn't mean you take one over the other. I want to be very careful here. I'm not saying go with your heart. Right? I'm saying that your heart is a piece of the equation right? that has to be brought into, into conversation with the other sources. Yeah. Do you want to finish your thought? I, that, I finished my thought here. Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, good so, I mean, of the dozen ideas of what being created in the image of God could mean, speed, moral, right, 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 right. capacity, physical... Clarity. All those things are true, but I think this goes much you know, deeper. Yeah. All those different ideas, where do we see the idea that it is our, our, our moral or spiritual intuition or our mind, our mind essentially, that is the divine part? What do you mean? You want a source for that? Well, I mean, only if there's one on the top of your head, or if you feel like the source is an important I mean, The source is important. Well, this is one so source. You say that there is a, a, an infinite dignity to human beings because we're created in the image of God. Right, but that, that's, that, that, that doesn't mean that our intuition has, a, has an eternal truth to it, right? Right. So I'll give you another thing here, okay. so since you asked. Okay? The other source that I have here, um, to the right of the one I quoted before, is from a book called Beit Yaakov. Rabbi Yaakov Leiner, he was the grandfather of the one on the left. Right? He was in the same Hasidic dynasty, which I feel very close to. It's my mother's side. Okay? Um, so he um, discusses here. All right, I'll, I'll read you the English, okay? And then I'll read the Hebrew because, oh, whatever, because I need to read the Hebrew for myself in order to get it. Okay? Uh, creation is but a garment of the will of God. Okay? A garment... Garments are very important in Kabbalistic thought. A garment is something that both conceals and facilitates revelation. It's two-sided, right? Um, it conceals, obviously, right, because it covers. But what if it didn't cover, if you didn't put clothes on in the morning, let's go at garments literally, if you didn't put clothes on in the morning, you wouldn't be able to leave your home. So putting on the garment also facilitates your revelation, right? So it both conceals and reveals. That's the paradox of a garment, right? That's it, and it exists in English as well. We talk about a turncoat, right? In Hebrew, a traitor is a bogade, the language of beged. Right? To turn your coat, right? But it starts in Hebrew. Turncoat actually comes from Hebrew, right? A bogate and a beged. The best one is a liar in, in, in uh, archaic Hebrew is a badai. You familiar with that term? Badai. Asher badami libo. It's in Tanakh. Badai. A badai is, is a liar, right? But the word badai comes from the Hebrew word bad, which is? Fabric. 
And when somebody makes up a story, you say they're fabricating. It comes from Hebrew, right? To fabricate, right? You're, you're, we say to weave a tale, right? These are words that we use, right? You don't know where it comes from, right? Because a garment both reveals and conceals, okay? So he says all of creation is a garment of God. And that's based on the, on the passages in Tehillim that God spread the heavens like a garment, right? He put the light on, or kasama, right? He, he dons light like a, like a robe, right? So he's looking basically, all right, this is going beyond what I want to talk about, but God is hidden in the world. He's revealed in the world and he's hidden in the world, and the world is a garment of God, okay? The true source of life of creation remains hidden from human beings. But the, the wearer of the garment is, is, you only see the garment, right? You don't see what animates it, okay? This means that man does not know the source of life, right? Now, he makes a major switch here. This is in the Hebrew as well. He makes a major shift. He's talking about creation. He starts off by talking about creation. How, look, in certain... There's, there's, a, there's a, um, a school of thought called vitalism. Vitalism is um, the belief that we normally think of life as a byproduct of the universe, right? One of the things that the universe produces is life. You have inat all these inanimate um, elements, right? And from that emerges life. There's also some things that are alive. Vitalism looks at it the other way around, that the universe is a byproduct of life. That it starts with life, that's vitalism, and the universe emerges from that. And the, the soul of the universe is God. And the universe emerges from the life of God. And that's another way of saying that the world, that creation is a garment of God. That's vitalism, right? What's her name writes about it? Um, Evelyn Underhill. <laughs> Evelyn Underhill, she was a British mystic. Um, she wrote a very important book called Mysticism, right? In the 1940s, I think. Huh? Evelyn, Evelyn Underhill. Very worth... Yeah, okay, anyway. So she writes about vitalism, okay? So this is, this is vitalism, right? Okay, but, so he's talking about the universe, right? Man does not know the true source of life, which resides... Oh, well, then he says... Then he makes a shift, that means that man does not know the source of life which resides in his own heart. He's made a shift. Before he's talking about God being the animating force of the universe, right? And now he's talking about the heart of a human being. It's nature and desire. If one would comprehend this, if you could get to the ground of yourself, I don't know if anybody ever did, did any meditation here, right? If you could get to the ground of yourself, if one would comprehend this, one would know the place of the Holy One, blessed be He. Because if you dig deep enough, God is not out there or only out there. God is in here, right? If you dig deep enough, you'll find Him there. But since you can never find, you can never find God in you, totally in yourself, because you can never understand yourself. It's the same thing. I have my same 14-year-old, the theologian, when he was nine, he asked me, I think I mentioned this to you, he, he asked me, 
where, who thought of the idea of God? It was a very funny question for a nine-year-old to ask, right? Who thought, so I looked at him, I know he's thinking something. I said, like, what do you mean? So he says, well, nobody can see him, so who thought of the idea, right? So, what? He's a little, no, he's a big believer. So I, so I said to him, people felt him in their hearts, right? And he said, that's the Hasidic answer. It's also the liberal Protestant answer, right? It's, right? it's Schleiermacher, and it's the Balatine, right? It's whatever. So um, Schleiermacher was a, like started liberal Protestant theology in the 18th century. So um, he has some very good essays called what? Uh, essays on, on religion to its um, despisers, something like that. He was like defending religion in Germany, whatever. So he's very, very beautiful stuff. So I said, people felt him in their hearts. So he said, oh, okay. Right, that was a good answer for him, right? And I hope that carries him for a while. So, um, so that's, and I was thinking about this also, right? So if you could comprehend who you are, that would be finding God, okay? And that, again, is the ground for which it forms the basis of how you could rely upon yourself in the conversation with the sources. And the conversation with the sources, listen, the source is not just this, this objective thing etched in stone, right? The sources are the hearts of the people that came before you and before them and before them. Because no one person, if we say that Everyone is a little piece of, the, of divine revelation. There's no one person can be the whole thing. And not even everyone alive at the same time could be the whole thing. Right? That's the meaning of civilization. Right? Civilization in a secular sense is that the, co the collective memory that gets passed on from generation to generation, that's something which is uniquely human. Right? In animals, it gets transferred maybe through DNA and instinct. But we have language and we have myths and we have symbols that carry that from one generation to the next, right? And that's a growing revelation of, of the presence of God in the world. That's the music, right? So you can't just say, well, I think this and to the hell, to the hell, hell with tradition. Because tradition is where you're emerging from. Because to say it's only me is like grossly obnoxious, right? But at the same time, you can't negate yourself because you're part of that. And to say that I'm nothing, I have to submit to it, is also a form of heresy. Right? But if you are a piece of the divine revelation, so you have to, you have to use yourself as a resource. Like just like I have to interpret the sources, I have to interpret myself. That's the work that has to be done. And that's brought into conversation with, I think that's what they're doing. Right? They might not have formulated it this way. Maybe they would have. Right? But I think that's where the justification comes from. So the way to deal with it and to say, like, isn't it terrible what, the, what they did to the Buddhas in Bamiyan is, yeah, it is terrible. And everything in my civilization, until where I am now, and that includes where I am now, right, tells me now that that's terrible. Right? And I, but I can't avoid the conversation of how, how that interaction occurs. That's the only honest way, I think, of dealing with it. Okay, that's my answer to myself. Thank you. I know we went a little over time. But... No, we did go over. We've okay. Got, we've got seven. So are you basically saying that these three examples you gave us, several others, <coughs> that's your answer to the question? 
That's my response. I don't like the, the answer is like a finite, has a finality to it. Right, I have more thoughts on this, but given the time limitations, but yeah, that's the crux of it. The problem is that true believers aren't going to, well, let me phrase it as a question. Are true believers willing to engage you in that kind of a conversation? Some of them. We've got to save God from the rest of them. <laughs> I'm trying to save God. You know, like, you can only do what you can do. I can't force people to agree with Okay. I'll be happy to burn in hell with whoever wants to join me. It can't be much hotter than it was outside today. I don't know. <laughs> it seems to me what you're saying is that the, the wrestling with God that, that Jacob did continues and that you can't have a wrestling match. You can't have that thing that makes us alive and that makes us members of the covenant. You can't be Yisrael with and God can't be in relationship with us unless we're engaging. That's absolutely true, but I would even add that the wrestling of Jacob is not with God, it's with himself. Because it's his brother who he, who he impersonated, and he didn't even know who it was because he didn't know if he got the blessing as Jacob, but his father only gave him the blessing when he thought he was Asaph. So he's wrestling with himself which is necessary for him to be able to confront and encounter his brother. Because he has to know who he is first. And that's why he needs a name. He doesn't have, he didn't get it. He didn't get the name. And he, he needs the blessing now again. He needs his brother to concede it to him. Because he took it as an imposter. If I get a blessing from you, but you think I'm someone else, I didn't really get the blessing, right? So I don't know if I get the blessing. Did he know who I was? That's a whole separate thing. We can talk about that also. Yeah, but he's struggling with himself, is my point. And it's the same thing as struggling with God, is my point. Right. But the, the name Yisrael is, if it describes us, if we are B'nai Yisrael, we have to engage in this conversation. And by virtue of bringing ourselves to it, it changes the conversation. Because if we're looking in the sources for what we're searching for, the fact that we have our own point of view makes us dig in different sources and dig exactly. and perceive differently and conclude differently. Right, and there was a Hasidic master who said that's a source I was looking forward to, I neglected to put here, is he said the Torah is like a mirror. You see in it who you are. That's exactly what you're saying. I wonder if we might change the title of this. Yeah. Saving God from true believers to saving God from true, saving God from true knowers. <laughs> you know, in that it seems to me that well, a true believer is a knower, right? What it means, yeah. what, what it means to be religious is to have the humility of not knowing. Correct. Whereas today, what it means to be religious is I know. Today, religious means uncertain, mm -hmm. as opposed to the humility of I don't I don't understand. So it seems to me that what God has been saved from is those who know, right? And right, but those are the true believers. Right, yeah, exactly. True so believers resonate. There's no such thing as right. true knowers. You know, but you're a no say, I don't know, so all I can do now is do what I understand to be the most good. Correct. The most good in the name of the pursuit of which is the best. Which right. is the best you can do. Right. You but just have to be good to, enough. To release that into, into and I, I want to be able to articulate it because to, uh, uh, to release what I should know most deeply within me towards something I don't know at all but claim to know. Um, 
I'm trying to I'm trying to put my finger on why that's such a why that's that's such a heresy. Because they claim this is the humble position. The humble position is I don't know anything, so I submit myself to those who know. And those who know were the people before us, right? I submit to the, gener the generations before me. But that's not a conversation. That's a lecture. <laughs> right? You're just receiving a lecture that way. You are not engaging in the seminar, which is the, the mandate of what we need to be doing. Right. You're just only, if you're only receiving, then you're not, you're not committed to the conversation. Well, this actually goes to, to legal theory. You had a guest here, Christine Hayes, mm -hmm. who wrote a book, um, What's divine about divine law? I don't know. Did they hear? I don't know if you're. So um, she writes. She writes in her book that there are different models of law, whether law is designed to instruct or to um, impose authority. It depends upon how you look at the function of law, right? Is is your audience your students or is your audience your subjects, right? So that's different. Different. That, that's rooted in different philosophies of law, which is what you're talking about, right? So the philosophy of law that you're talking about and what emerges from here is the, the, the I'm, I'm teaching the law to my students, or am I legislating the law, right? And if you look in the Bible, you get different, you get different nuances, right? So that's the issue, and it goes to Kabbalistic theories of how God relates to the world. That goes to the tzimtzum and things like that, which would be on the scope of our discussion. Thank okay? You. All right. Okay, thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.